Hi, it's Toby Miller here. I want to thank Professor Smythe for giving me the chance to speak to you all today. I'm going to talk for about a quarter of an hour. I apologize that this isn't in video, which was the original intention and how it was originally recorded. There's an uploading problem at the hotel where I'm staying. It, the signal just isn't strong enough for me to be able to send the information to you in the way I'd like. That's a lesson about the incompetence of the Anglo-Saxon countries that have left broadband up to private sector competition rather than either public sector participation or at least public sector oversight of a single natural monopoly to install an efficient and effective system, which is, of course, what's been done in the countries that have proper broadband, i.e. those of Southeast Asia. So anyway, here goes. I'm going to talk to you now about the relationship between sport and gender with a particular focus on masculinity. For those of you who are interested in this topic and want to know more, you could go to my website, which is tobymiller.org, T-O-B-Y-M-I-L-L-E-R.org, and then you could go to the sections that look at sport and that look at gender. I'm going to focus in particular today on some case studies from the United States. And because most, if not all of you, are not from the US, I need to give a little context. Professor Smythe is going to share with you some slides that will illustrate the people that I'm talking about. But my main focus is basically one that says something is really going on in the state of gender politics that sees the male body as one of the key foci, maybe the principal focus of sport today. And whilst you might say that's hardly news, after all, men have dominated sport and sports coverage in the media for a very long time, what's significant is that normally the male body in all its beauty and its pain and its decay is not subject to the same kind of scrutiny as the female body is. We can see that in everyday culture, let alone the media. But in sports, the decay, the injury, the fall from grace, but also the transcendence, the beauty, and the finesse, and the strength, and speed, and power are all obsessively analysed, broken down, put back together by analysts in a seemingly gender-free, asexual way that would hardly apply to almost any other sphere in which one discussed the male body. One of the interesting ways to think about sport and gender is to say that when we deal with these concepts that appear to be polarities, masculinity and femininity, and that appear to have very, very different and distinct ways of being, we need to understand that there are limit cases and lots of limit cases that occur every day when those antonyms, those differences, those binary oppositions are actually brought into question. A famous one that gets talked about is, for example, in the case of a straight man and a straight woman, and they're a couple, the woman goes to, say, the changing rooms of a clothing store in a department store in a mall and says to the boyfriend, would you mind holding my bag for a moment? And he says, okay. And those moments when he's standing around outside the women's changing room, people are looking at him as if to say, why are you hanging around outside the women's changing room? You're a pervert. But they're also looking at him and he's looking at himself thinking that and also thinking, why am I holding a woman's handbag? I don't know where to hold it. I don't know how to hold it. And that that is a moment of masculinity. That's when you see it emerging. And so those what are called breach cases or limit instances are what I'm going to look at today. And the first 
uh, is that of Dennis Rodman, who appears in slides one and two. Slide one is a picture of him from the cover of Rolling Stone, which was in the 60s a very important youth music magazine and continues to be an important music industry magazine. And this depicts Dennis Rodman as the devil, a demonic black man. Dennis Rodman, six feet nine inches, former National Basketball Association star, winner of numerous rings for the uh, successful team in the NBA finals each year with both the Philadelphia and Chicago teams, a bruising defender known for his extraordinary ability in defense, but not for the beauty of his play. He was a bruising player, but also known for, while being a six foot nine black man from an extraordinarily difficult family background and immense poverty, dressing up as a woman, saying that he would consider having sex with a man, wearing makeup, hanging out with the leader of the North Korean Communist Party, going into rehab, marrying an MTV VJ, a white woman, having sex with Madonna and then talking about it, writing autobiographies where he says he thinks everybody's bisexual, and this from an extraordinarily macho culture. So Rodman in this first slide, depicted as the devil, and then in his second slide, depicted in drag. Interestingly enough, he's the only person we'll talk about today whom I met, and I met him in a men's toilet. He was very charming, to the extent one can be charming in a man's toilet. Uh, he was sweet and nice. We were both in a fancy bar. And standing next to a man who is a foot taller than you is a strange experience, or not, not a foot taller, but 10 inches taller than you is a strange experience for me. But there he was, this fast figure. And we had a little chat, as men sometimes do, but not very often. And he treated me as if I were just one more guy in the bar. But here he is not being one more guy in the bar. Here he is bringing into question the kind of virility that marks out the sports star and in some sense problematizing the notion of the conventions of male beauty as allowable only when it comes to the sporting field. The next figure I'm going to turn to, also on the cover of Rolling Stone, but 20 years earlier, is O.J. Simpson. You may have heard of O.J. Simpson, also African-American. He was a star college footballer with the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, and then he played in the National Football League. He was called the Juice because of his initials, OJ, on the cover of Rolling Stone with uh, his torso naked, clearly depicted as beautiful, but also, when you look at that face, questioning, wondering, not quite sure. Uh, O.J. went on to have a brilliantly successful career, not only as a football player, but then as a media personality. He was in a lot of movies, most of which are pretty forgettable, but he was a successful colour commentator, as they're called, on television, and he also was a pitch man in various TV commercials, especially for a car rental firm. But perhaps more famous is this picture from... 16 years later, 1994, and here we see O.J. Simpson in a mugshot after his arrest for the murder of his former wife and her friend. And that picture is, I guess, one of the most iconic of the 1990s. When it was represented in Time magazine, his face was made darker deliberately by time. So here we see the decline and fall of an athlete and his being turned into a blacker man than he was, 
This is part of the racial formation that overdetermines masculinity in a country like the United States and, of course, in many countries where black people are marginalised or demonised or both. Here we see the other side of the rough, tough athlete, the side that is not just perhaps breaking the rules in front of the referee or the umpire, but the side that is supposedly endemically involved in illegal activity. And of course, OJ then went on, having been exonerated, you see him in slide five smiling uh, during his trial, having been exonerated from the, the murder, he was then found guilty of a lesser non-felony charge of being responsible for their deaths, had to pay a lot of money, and then, of course, went to jail for going into someone's hotel room and threatening them and seizing objects that he had claimed were his. This is a, a classic picture, picture number six of OJ after his acquittal, getting fat, smoking a cigar with a blonde white woman passed out on his arm in a nightclub, both pretty out of it, and that's very much the way his life was depicted with Nicole Simpson, the woman whom he was accused of murdering. So this notion of the black man who shows no connection to the black community, to the civil rights formation that helped to get him off, and here, as always, relaxing with an out-of-it white woman, makes him also seen as someone who suffers from racism, but at the same time doesn't pay his dues to the black community. So again, you see the overdetermination of the sports star in the United States when African-American, you are not only there as a man or as O.J. Simpson or as Dennis Rodman, you are always already also there as a representative of a racial formation. Moving on to slide seven, and here we have the one picture I've got of Mike Tyson, also, of course, an African-American and famous for being possibly the greatest world heavyweight champion after Muhammad Ali, certainly the most renowned, if not infamous. And this picture of uh, Tyson smiling also reveals, of course, the gold teeth inlays, uh, the remarkable, very attractive artwork done on his face in the form of tattoos. And by showing those teeth reminds us of his biting of Evander Holyfield's ear during a bout. He bit off part of Holyfield's ear. May remind us also of the, the naked violence that is boxing, where again we're seeing men wearing only flimsy underpants, basically, and boots and gloves. And probably reminds us also of the rape for which he was convicted and his descent, ascent, re-descent, re-ascent many, many times as Islam, as drugs, as rape, as boxing, as his love of pigeons reassert themselves, his adoration of poetry, his appearances in films and one-man drama shows directed by Spike Lee, show a whole narrative of excess, of suddenly being remarkable, world-famous figure for his boxing skill or his other strange qualities, and then being a figure of disdain and disgust for his criminal activity, his quasi-cannibalism, his violence against women, which, for example, saw him denied a visa to enter Great Britain. So here we see the black man again as the out-of-control figure, this limit case of masculinity, but once more very contradictory, the pigeon-loving, the poetry, the Islam. Okay, 
Pictures 8, 9, and 10 are of somebody you may not have heard of, Ben Johnson. Ben Johnson, also a black man from the slave diaspora, but in his case, Canadian and Caribbean. And this first picture, slide 8, is of Johnson winning the 100 metres at the Seoul Summer Olympic Games in the 100 metre dash, 1988. Uh, this is right after he's crossed the finishing line, and then the next slide, nine, shows how far ahead of the rest of the field he indeed was. But suddenly we go to slide 10, and here is Ben Johnson racing against a horse for money some 15 years later. So what gives? What happens? Well, slides eight and nine are a moment of exultation and triumph when the pulsating male body with its extraordinary musculature and pace manages to break a world record. But of course, what happened three days later was the revelation that he had been taking performance-enhancing drugs and that this had built up his body mass and also helped him recover from injury and allowed him to win the race. Now, the fact that 25 years later, we know almost everybody in that race was on performance-enhancing drugs, is irrelevant by contrast with the notoriety that attached itself to Ben Johnson at that time. Banned from athletics around the world, he made a comeback, again was found to be taking performance-enhancing drugs, again was uh, banned, again came back, uh, lost all his endorsement sponsorship deals that he'd had and was reduced to this stuff um, a humiliating quasi-slave image of the black man running around after the horse turned into an animal-like creature. Uh, we've all seen these images in our pasts, or at least we've read about them. And what's also interesting is that the alibi that Johnson had for the performance-enhancing drugs was that he had taken them in order to counteract a sexually transmitted disease. So again, there is this image of the uncontrolled black sexuality twinning with the rampant physicality of the male athlete to produce excess and lawlessness. All right, let's now go on to the last of our black subjects, number 11, and this is Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson, one of the most famous LA Lakers players of all time, in the National Basketball Association, remarkable player. Here he is uh, in his pomp, who signed from a uh, Michigan University team where he was a very famous player to be part of the multiple dynasties over successive generations of players that saw the Lakers win many, many uh, NBA championships. Here's one of his title-winning moves. Uh, since then, of course, he's gone on to become not only a part owner of uh, major sports franchises, but also a very important investor in movie theatres in black parts of L.A., a successful entrepreneur, a media figure, and also an HIV survivor. Because 24 years ago, right after the Lakers won a title, he was disclosed as having HIV. Magic Johnson, as the name might suggest, and the big smile you saw in slide number 11, was seen as the epitome of the good black man, the domesticated, charming house negro in the terminology, the racist terminology of the slave era, the man who knew how to make all the moves, not just on court, 
but in the news, whose sexuality was under control, who was charming, who was affable, who was not criminal. Suddenly, at the height of HIV hysteria, when there were very few drugs to control the disease, and it was very much associated with gay sex, a man who is presumed as part of his compulsory heterosexuality uh, within the discourse of sport to be straight suddenly is someone about whom questions are asked. And immediately he said, well, I arrived in LA, I was famous, I accommodated, this was the term he used, thousands of women. I guess one of them gave it to me. Now, the good news is, as I said, he's survived, the drugs have worked for him, he's gone on to be an extremely successful business person. I've actually not met him, but been in the weight training room with him, and again, he's a slightly larger man than me, and he's a lot wider than he was in his pomp. But one of the things about this was that it led to people being afraid of him on the court. The Australian Olympic team said they would refuse to play against him. Carl Malone, one of his teammates, didn't want to play with him. But there was support, and he kept going, uh, made a comeback, was quite successful, and since then, of course, has gone on to great things. But here, one of the aspects we see is when women come into the picture, they are seen as controlling of men, as sexually predatory themselves, as being interested in sleeping with men because of their power and money, not being interested in relationships, and putting men under pressure, utilizing the incapacity of male sexuality to control itself, to get money or get control or get noticed part also of the discussion that went on over the Mike Tyson rape in partial so-called defense of his violence against women. So uh, here Johnson explains away his having HIV as a, an epiphenomenal side effect of the rampant, uncontrolled sexuality of women. Okay, the last few slides, we're going to move on to white sexuality, and here we're going to twin it with militarism and patriotism. The first of these slides is a picture of Pat Tillman when he was a college footballer. This is uh, in Arizona State. He went on then to be a successful NFL player and would have had a great career. You can see him suited up here. But he then decided instead to give up uh, being a football player and join the military. He saw himself as nationalistic, patriotic after September 11th, 2001. That was what he should do. So he goes to Afghanistan and is killed and immediately is turned into a hero by a White House desperate for heroic figures to justify its failed invasions of Iraq and Afghanistan. Sports Illustrated, the major sports magazine in the US, puts him on the cover with Remember His Name. His funeral is broadcast live around the country by ESPN, which is the big sports cable channel owned by Disney, um, addressed by Senator John McCain, a Vietnam veteran, later a presidential candidate who'd never even met McCain, and on and on and on it went. So unforgettable Pat Tillman, 1976 to 2004, a complete obsession with this man as embodying all that is great about the United States that gave up a great football career for real heroism, where sport is simply a game, pardon the pun, by contrast with the serious business of winning victory for democracy. Then this man, General Stanley McChrystal, who was in charge of the US military in Afghanistan, awards him a silver star for valor. But unfortunately, it turns out, part of that concealed the cause of Tillman's death. And you can see in slide 18 a little description of this. Basically, McChrystal, 
and Donald Rumsfeld, then Secretary of Defense, and probably people in George W. Bush's office lied about the fact that, guess what? Pat Tillman was killed by his own people. He wasn't killed by Afghans, nor was the Afghan who was with him, who never got named. He was killed by so-called friendly fire. Just behind him, in, on the occasion he was shot, was his brother. And the last slide, 19, so shows his brother and his widow and his mother in the Congress at a long-awaited hearing into his killing, at which it was disclosed that, of course, the army had lied and lied and lied. And during those protests, we also discovered that Pat Tillman had been virulently anti-war. He was a fan of Noam Chomsky's, the great radical U.S. linguist and opponent of U.S. imperialism. He had arranged on his return from his, next to his latest tour of Afghanistan to meet Chomsky, and he'd woken up to the realities of imperialism with the invasion of Iraq. His family was then vilified and brutalized by the right-wing media. Uh, his, it was claimed that he was an all-American guy and he couldn't possibly have thought these things. These remarks were made again and again and again by right-wingers. So here we have white masculinity and the only, white, the only male shown in these slides who's died and who's gone beyond the battlefield of football to the real battlefield of war and been killed, who is immediately heroized and trumpeted in a way none of these black men could be because of their various, in inverted commas, transgressions, by the bourgeois media as a grand symbol of all that is right with the United States. But all of that is a fraud, not because he's a fraud at all, but because he was a radicalized person who had transcended his upbringing and the patriotism instilled in him at school and university to see the realities of the imperial power that he was serving. So what's the point of all of this? Why have I shown you these 19 slides? Why am I raving on at you for over 20 minutes, having said it would be 15? The reason is to get back to where I began, that I think we're seeing a remarkable moment when masculinity, because of its centrality to sport, and because of sports increasing centrality to many, many parts of the world economy and the way in which the media are intricated with that popularity and that significance, men are, masculinity is suddenly up for the taking, up for grabs, up for disclosure, up for critique, up for delectation, up for pleasure, up for problematization. And in these slides, you've seen that this applies not only to the African-American man, the most feared social subject in the United States, but even to the heroic white heterosexual man who dies for his country. That this masculinity we're seeing, the state of sport and gender these days, is profoundly unstable, problematic and multifaceted. And I hope that's been of some use to you.